0: Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Investigation Game Podcast. Today I have with me Kathy Inget. She has a PhD in accounting. She's a CPA, and she's also a certified fraud examiner. So welcome to the podcast, Kathy.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited and terrified all at the same time.
0: Oh, you don't need to be terrified. <laughs> the production team makes us sound like we're stars, so it's great. <laughs> so first, I kind of just want to start with talking about your background and experience. We met just a couple weeks ago, much like we're recording this podcast over Skype, we met each other through FaceTime a yes. couple weeks ago, which is so random. But I love it. And I love, I know I sound like a broken record. I love the podcast and the ability to meet people that I wouldn't have otherwise met, just connecting through technology and different states. So you're a professor at the University of Albany, correct? Correct. Let's kind of just go. Over to your background and some of your experience that led you to what you do now.
1: Okay. So growing up, I was always the kid who whatever it was that we were learning, that's what I wanted to be when I grow up. So like every new lesson, I wanted to be something else. But the things that typically stuck more frequently would be the teaching side of things and also solving puzzles and mysteries and things like that. So I was a Nancy Drew girl since I was little and accounting was just kind of an easy fit for me. It came fairly natural. So, I started out in a small little local firm in South Dakota where I worked primarily on mom and pop type shops for, you know, their audits, reviews, compilations and all of the tax returns that go along with it. So, you got to see a very wide variety of industries and experiences in that smaller firm. And then I Ended up in Texas, getting my master's, also in accounting, at the University of Texas at Austin, and ended up going to work for a Big Four firm in Dallas after I was done with that, where I actually finally made it into the forensic world. You know, South Dakota's not that big, not a huge market for forensic accountants, although I'm sure it's larger than what they would like to admit. <laughs> and so, four years with the big four in forensic accounting and then PhD for five years. And now I'm at UAlbany, like you said, teaching primarily graduate students. And we have a forensic accounting master's program. That's me in a nutshell.
0: That's awesome. So are the classes that you teach Strictly forensic accounting, like you don't teach regular accounting or auditing?
1: Mostly I teach the forensic accounting related courses, but since a lot of our students do go into audit first rather than directly into forensic accounting, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of it has an audit spin and a fraud spin. So this semester I'm teaching statistical methods in forensic accounting and auditing, which is a very scary name for saying, you know, it's an entry-level data analytics type course. I use a lot of the fraud potential risk and stories to make it interesting. But we also talk about it from, you know, how it can help from an audit standpoint as well, not just from a forensic investigation standpoint.
0: I would think that would be really handy because forensic accounting is still a niche and so many people are going to go and actually get audit experience first. Kind of seeing where those worlds collide, I think would be really handy.
1: Yeah, I think so. And then You know, other classes I teach, corporate governance and financial statement fraud. Occasionally, I'll teach a fraud examination class or an accounting information systems class. But because of my prior work experience in forensic accounting, that's where they typically try to utilize me.
0: So I'm just kind of curious, whenever you worked for the big four firm and you had done compilations, reviews, and audits, previously. And then you went to school and then started with this big four firm in Dallas. Like, how did you kind of navigate that to end up on their forensic accounting team?
1: That's primarily what the University of Texas was for. I call it my most expensive door opener (laughs) that I've ever purchased (laughs) because there isn't a big four presence in South Dakota. So they didn't come recruiting Mm. there. So University of Texas, they're all recruiting at the University of Texas. So that was my end I applied exclusively for forensic accounting positions. I didn't even consider anything else. And that's how I ended up there. Although oddly, I still ended up doing a lot of audit assist type work given my prior auditing background.
0: Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's awesome. I remember when I was at ORU, there was a forensic accountant that came to our school. And, you know, I had always planned on becoming an FBI agent, but since I was majoring in accounting and then someone, I don't remember which one, but, you know, from a very large, one of the big four accounting firms, she came and she presented at one of our accounting society meetings. And I thought, oh my goodness, you can do this in the private sector too. But, you know, she was in (laughs) Dallas and it was going to be a really big firm. And anyway, my path didn't end up taking me there, but I always thought, hmm, I wonder how you would do that. So thank you. Kathy, you know, told me what I always wanted to know. <laughs> how would that have worked? Since I said that I haven't worked for a large public accounting firm in the area of forensic accounting, I worked in public accounting for tax. What was your participation in those forensic accounting engagements when you worked for them?
1: So it was a variety of different things. I started out primarily, like I said, in kind of more of the audit assist type area. Socks had just come into play. The couple years before. So, helping the external audit teams with their entity level controls, you know, their whistleblower type evaluations and code of conduct and all of that sort of stuff, fraud brainstorming session prep, and ultimately, you know, sitting in on some of the SAS 99 fraud inquiries of the higher level management. So that's kind of where I started. I probably spent the better part of a year or two doing all of that. I worked on one restatement. The fraud had already been investigated. They were in the process of restating their financial statements in order to get them correct. So that was where I started for that. And then ultimately, even though I fought it for a little while, I hit my actual stride in calling And started doing what we called proactive forensic data analytics. So I got over my fear (laughs) of computers and analyzing things and not understanding how everything works and helped internal and external audit engagements on their journal entry testing and payroll testing and vendor master and payables and all of that sort of stuff, just looking for. Potential anomalies for like their quarterly or annual reviews, looking at 100% of that population and helping them identify the most unusual entries and transactions so they could spend the majority of their time addressing those risks rather than a random sample.
0: Yeah. Okay. So many questions now. (laughs) Okay. So I I will limit because we do have a time limit on this podcast. Was there a favorite test that you had to, that you enjoyed running? or anything that you thought this just always produced something interesting to look at but Fraud or not i know, you know maybe even just mistakes and errors
1: vendor masters they are the ugliest data set in the whole entire world it is amazing how many duplicates get put in there and mm. you know, there's like 52 different walmart's listed some of them with the dash some without the dash i had no idea How messy those could be, and how easily somebody could hide something because, oh, well, it was just a whoops, I must have picked the wrong vendor version. So while it's really my Walmart version or, you know, my Kathy company that sounds like the other company, that was always the most fun for me, even though it took a lot of work. Sure. But there was always something to dig and find.
0: Yeah. So that fits (laughs) just so perfectly with. Our podcast from a couple of weeks ago about vendor credentialing and things like that. So yeah, awesome. It is. It's so messy. I mean, just and even a lot of
1: it's just internal control errors.
0: Yeah, and and like data entry errors, mm-hmm. you know, on the front end. And anyway, gosh, now my wheels are spinning because I have listened to a podcast that's on like data related stuff, but it's not fraud related or anything. And just some different tools that people use to do like fuzzy matching and things like that. Anyway, we won't dive into that. That is not the purpose of this podcast, but maybe it should be, maybe you should be back. And we talk about that next time. There we go. Maybe I'll have a Rachel, our lead data analyst, just ask you like loads of questions about that and chat <laughs> about that too. What were kind of the catalysts that made you step out to earn your PhD and then to begin teaching?
1: So a lot of it was, timing as far as when I did it. Like I said before, it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. My accounting professors, i loved their classes. I really enjoyed mentoring and teaching the newer associates not only what it is that they're supposed to do, but more importantly, why they're were doing it. So that was always fun for me. I enjoyed those sorts of things. I enjoyed, you know, creating team building events and all that sort of stuff. And in 2008, the AICPA joined with a number of public accounting firms to fund 120 PhDs for audit and tax practitioners. So mm. trying to get professionals with experience in to teach the incoming classes. There is a big shortage, lots of people retiring, and it was a really good opportunity. And so I just jumped in first.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. just what a cool opportunity. And 120, like out of the whole country. Well,
1: over over the course of four years. So they took 30 people each year for four years they funded. So yeah, they spent a lot of money.
0: But I mean, I just think that says a lot about you too, like that you were selected for that program. I just think that's amazing because that's not very many per year, you know, when you think of all the accountants in the U.S. at least. So that's amazing. I wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about some innovations and we'll kind of talk about how we even connected because it was through that, just some different educational things that we're working on and what you're working on and then connecting through the podcast. But let's just take a break real quick and we'll be right back. Today's Data Sleuth Hack is sponsored by Workman Forensics. When looking for high risk payments, whether related to fraud or to find hidden assets, We recommend searching the financial data for even dollar payments. This is an easy task once you have converted your data to a format you can analyze in Excel. To begin, in Excel, highlight the row containing your data column headers. Then click on the data menu or tab. Within this menu, click on the filter button. Next to each column header, a drop down arrow will appear. Click on the drop down arrow in the column header above your payment amounts. The drop-down menu contains a search field. Within this search field, type decimal zero zero. This will filter your data to list only the even dollar payments. Watch our lead data analyst Rachel walk through an example of this Data Sleuth hack on our YouTube channel under the Workman Forensics playlist Data Sleuth Hack. Welcome back to my conversation with Kathy Ingett. You and I were actually introduced through the Investigation Game podcast. One of your students had heard the podcast and then introduced you. And then I guess through that, you heard about our Investigation Game. Is that kind of what happened?
1: Yeah. So one of my students, and I suppose I should give a shout out to Jeremy. Oh, yes. We would not be here today. So that's fabulous. He told me about the podcast because I had mentioned to the class that I have an interest in creating learning activities and games, and ultimately I would like to create a fraud investigation video game, we'll get to that later, I'm sure. So he was telling me, well, did you know about this investigation game that already exists? There's a podcast. And I'm like, what? Somebody already did what I wanted to do? Whoa, whoa is me, right? Uh, Very dramatic, just like that. (laughs) And I checked it out in your first podcast, because I must do things in linear order, Mm -hmm. (laughs) was a quick little 10-minute Spiel where you were explaining the investigation game and the man cave, and I was like, This is so awesome! And so then I started listening to all of the other episodes. Eventually, you know, I did my search, and you were in Tulsa, and my colleague also is in Tulsa. We've worked on some of these things together, and so I just took a gamble and sent out an email and was like, Hey, my friend's gonna be in your town. Do you want to chat with us? That would be great. And you responded back within like an hour. It was
0: fabulous. Well, I was just so excited. I mean, I love to hear that somebody, I don't know, whenever I'm creating things, I'm like, am I only the only person who's going to care about this? So yes, I saw that you like liked the game. and I'm like, of course I have to respond. I love this. But then through that conversation, you and your colleague talked about an escape room activity that you had put together to provide your students with hands-on learning opportunities for like an actual audit engagement, but then combining that with the whole concept of an escape room. So would you just share with our listeners the story? I'm kind of curious, whenever the students went into this room, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty of how it worked, but like just what was the story of the audit engagement? What were they kind of looking for? And, you know, what were they tasked with doing? The
1: students end up having to do a little bit of prep work because we're putting them in the mindset of, you know they're a new auditor in training, right? So they're going through some training. So they've read some of the materials that they're going to be covering, and they come to class that day and find out that their trainer has locked them. I say quote unquote, I guess because can't really lock students in classrooms. Yeah. But for the story purposes, we are locking them in a classroom, and they are being given an hour to complete a series of five audit-related tasks. And in doing so, they will help reveal five clues to unlock the locks and therefore be able to get out of our classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audit-related tasks are little puzzles where they're evaluating the audit engagement risk. They're calculating planning materiality and tolerable misstatement. They are looking at process narratives and flow charts and they're dealing with, you know, identifying audit assertions that are related and things like that. And in solving those, if they solve them correctly, they will arrive at a clue which will help them unlock the five different locks that they need to unlock.
0: I see. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. Very intense. How long did you give the students to work through the problem? Like, did they have to get it in some time or just get out?
1: They get an hour. (laughs) So, So yeah, like a typical escape room, you know, we give them an hour. Yeah. They have, you know, a couple of, I mean, they have all of the materials that even if they don't remember how to do an audit risk or how to calculate materiality, they have the equivalent of little excerpts of what their audit methodology would be. And so what the audit firm's process is for doing these particular things. And none of the topics should be new to them. It was developed as something to kind of Reinforce some of the learning they should have done earlier in the semester, kind of like capstone type of thing, is kind of like an oh, yeah, this stuff is not going away. You just don't get to memorize it, take a test, and be done. <laughs> you need to still be able to do these
0: things. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Kind of to back up a little bit, in teaching forensic accounting or auditing, in your experience, what do you think is one of the most challenging things to teach the students?
1: Critical thinking. Mm. They are very well trained in how to take a multiple choice test. So trying to give them as many opportunities to think and make mistakes and try something new and mostly just doing the things. As much as possible, I try to relate things, not necessarily exactly real world, but towards real world, something that they're actually, some tasks that they're going to have to actually do at some point in time. And then also be cognizant of how and why they're doing those things and how that might translate into other situations.
0: Yeah, sure. I can see that. I mean, as an employer, we often have the same issue. Like, you know, you can only provide so much training, but then the employee still has to make decisions based on that training. I think that critical thinking component. And then you add on top of that, that my team does only forensic accounting and everything, although our process is the same, there's still situational based decisions that have to be made. I can't tell you what to make in that moment. I can't take every single little step with you and just being able to, I don't know, be comfortable in the uncomfortable and then make decisions, but just kind of thinking through like, why did you make that decision? Because even if somebody doesn't necessarily agree with you at the end to know why you did it, I think is just really helpful because then- I can see where did something get messed up. It's kind of like we we, yeah. we talk sometimes about how my mom's a math teacher. And so growing up, she always showed me and she was a high school math teacher. So I had to like show my work. Right. Well, I could get partial credit if I showed my work. But for the people, for the students she had that just put down one answer, like you can't give partial credit for that. So that's how I kind of see critical thinking and work papers and putting a case together and making assumptions and documenting that. So yes, I'm empathizing because it's the same. It's just the same learning issue that I think employers have. I know I have it. I don't think I'm alone in that. Okay, so let's go back to the escape room. Okay. Obviously, just that being the issue, something like a game, an escape room, uh, a video game. We'll talk about that in a minute. But those types of things allow us, and I, I wrote an article about this one time, but allow us to take a real world or as close to real world as we can situation and make decisions and see what the outcomes are without having some huge downside or failure associated with it. Like, because we do learn through failure and sometimes it's so scary to, I mean, I know this because there was no game when I learned to do all this stuff, but just how many hours I would stress over decisions that I was making to make sure it was the right one, just all that. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of the development of the escape room. How were you able to create this and just kind of some of those details? Like, how did it work and how long did it take to develop?
1: So the idea came about when my colleague, Michael, and I went to a games and education conference. It was primarily targeted towards K-12 through teachers, but there we learned about a... Tool called Breakout Edu, which is a platform that's primarily geared towards developing and sharing escape room type activities for K-12 teachers, mm-hmm. either through physical lock boxes or with digital locks that you can do online. At first, we just kind of thought that it would be a fun educational way that we could incorporate it into. It would lend itself well to an audit class. Because audit is just a series of little puzzles and tasks that you have to do and come up with answers. Yeah, that's true. Right? So I would say that the idea and the puzzles came together rather quickly. I would say we had that mostly laid out within about a semester. But now we've been refining and beta testing for going on two or three years now. And we started with just thinking about, well, what did we want the students to be able to do? which resulted in reinforcing topics that they've already learned in this cooperative team-type atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, like I'm sure that you experienced with your Man Cave game, it's, it's, it's a lot of little tweaks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of extra participants just playing it over and over again, getting people to read it try to figure out what's not clear what's not working how can you fix it make it better and it's
0: just it's it's a longer process than you would think yeah gosh and that, sometimes I even wonder if we're ever going to be finished you know I mean it works it doesn't break we have two teams that have scored perfect scores you know out of like I don't know six or seven hundred people it is functioning and it's so much fun and we get amazing reviews back after people play but still me as the originator of this idea, the creator of this idea, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, but we could also do this and we could also do this. So I don't know that it's ever, <laughs> that we're ever finished. So what are your plans for the escape room now? Are you going to do anything with the one you've already developed?
1: plan is to publish it in an accounting educational journal. And right now we're going through those revisions and additional beta testing. And I think ultimately we, we enjoy making things like the escape room. So I think we'd like to continue making additional escape room activities. Uh, there's one for management accounting that's already in like very early draft stages. Oh, that's great. Um, and then every time we present on our case, then lots of professors or you know whoever's in the audience come up and it's like, that's so neat. Have you ever thought about doing one for insert class here? <laughs> so yeah. I think that there's a desire for it and we enjoy it. Yeah. Around, it's just publishing.
0: Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Okay. So let's take that. And in doing the escape room, was the escape room your first idea or had you always wanted to do a video game to, to help communicate?
1: I wanted to try to create a
0: fraud investigation video game. Okay.
1: Um, And then we started thinking through what was all involved in that. And it's way bigger (laughs) um, than we ever even imagined. Sure. Um, So we decided to start with something analog first and that's where the audit escape room came in. And then. The video game is just kind of that thing that's percolating in the back of my head all of the
0: time. Yeah, that's awesome. My husband tried to expose me to a point and click like mystery game a couple years ago on Steam. Like he downloaded a few of those and I was horrible at them. (laughs) So (laughs) like he tried because he's always been a gamer and a video gamer. And I've always been more interested in tabletop games. So anyway, I was terrible at them. But maybe I could could work a fraud investigation one. Maybe it was just the subject matter I didn't understand. I don't know. Do you want to maybe explain, because maybe some of our listeners don't even know what a point-and-click game is. But then on top of that, a fraud investigation point-and-click game. Like, how do you envision this?
1: The big dream is to create this forensic accounting detective noir kind of in video game format. So on your laptop or in your tablet, hopefully not in the not too crazy distant future, you will be the player and you'll get to be Sam Samantha Spade or some much better (laughs) non-copyrighted detective name. Um, And you'll get hired to investigate a potential financial crime. But you don't really know what you're doing because you're new to all of this, right? So Hmm. as you progress along in this kind of, visual choose-your-own-adventure novel, you'll learn about different fraud schemes, red flags, evidence collection, interviewing, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. The decisions you make will impact what evidence and what characters are available to you. And before you make those choices, I kind of envision it as being, there's just a whole lot of gray in the background. So, Mm -hmm people and objects are just kind of like a two dimensional different gray type tones. But as you learn, and as you take the right steps, they will kind of come alive in color and you can begin to interact with them. Hmm. Um, The goal then at the end is to also provide feedback to the investigator on, you know, what they successfully found, what they might've missed and how they could achieve more effective results if had taken some other steps instead
0: yeah sure that would be awesome I would definitely play it like I said (laughs) Uh, I would I would definitely play that so can you kind of explain okay I really only knew two types two types of video games I know what a point and click is from my one experience and then also a first-person shooter because that's what my husband played all those years but I wouldn't know had I not married my husband so can you kind of explain what is a point and click game
1: So essentially, as you're walking through the game, you get to different places and you can choose to do different things. So point and click portion of my game, I envision as being kind of blended in with the actual narrative, right? So you get hired, you have this conversation that happens between you and somebody else, and then you get to a certain point in the conversation and you have to make a decision. You can either choose to go left or to go right, the blue pill or the red pill, um, sort of And depending on the choices you make, then you maybe have new rooms that are open up to you or new people you can go interview. And you can do that just by simply tapping on, you know, some either on a map to say, I want to go to the photocopy room or I want to go talk to the CFO or, you know, whatever those things happen to be. I would like to go and look for this particular invoice in this file cabinet that I just learned about from the accounts receivable clerk. And then as you get those things, as you interview those people, things like from your regular investigation that you would kind of be keeping track of so that you can report on it will go into kind of an inventory type mechanism so that you can go back and review it later Mm. so that you can you're like okay so what was that invoice for and why did I think it was weird and how much is it who was involved who signed off you know so you have those sorts of things that you can refer back to just by using your click of the mouse and clicking on whatever it is that you want to do the room the person your evidence bag yeah <laughs> no whatever ever happens to be
0: yeah okay so the point and click is kind of your information gathering And then it'd be kind of stored in this inventory list. And then you'd have to connect the dots and see if you found all the pieces. And and, Did you interview
1: the right people? Right. Did you do it in the right order? Yeah. Did you ask the right sorts of questions? Did you talk to everybody you needed to talk to? Right. And so each one of those things you click on would have a conversation or something that you're going to look for and ultimately come to a decision. You know, yes, I would like to request this invoice. You get said invoice. Yeah. Those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Man, yeah. just look at you making fraud investigation cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, who
1: are we kidding? Fraud investigation was cool before.
0: It, it is. It really is. In the world of accounting, so many people say, man, if you're going to be an accountant, you might as well be a forensic accountant, right?
1: Yeah. Like, and mine sort true? of, if you're going to be a accounting professor who has to do research, it might as well be on something interesting. So it's going to be on fraud.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Well, awesome. Thanks for sharing your idea with us. Thanks. So I feel like all of these games or situations, I think they work best, of course, if you're working an actual case and as a fraud examiner, as some, you know, for yourself, as somebody that worked in forensic accounting, I'm sure you have some stories. I mean, I feel like, because every case just has some different nuances and what did you have to apply and what, tools have you put in your tool belt that you have to pull out on this one case, but you don't necessarily need on another. I mean, to me, it's limitless. So I'm curious about any case stories that you would like to share with our listeners, because we just love those. And not to mention, you know, maybe one day when we're playing your game, we're going to know a little bit of something from this case story. Maybe you never know. There's
1: no spoilers here. Right. 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 <laughs> um, it- no spoilers on the game that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. But anywho, I would say that one of the cases that I frequently go back to is usually my first one, which I <laughs> I refer to as the coma guy case. Hmm. Okay. So I'll step back here for a second. So I was still working in South Dakota. This was one of those smaller, owner-owned companies that. The partners gave this to the green auditors. It was a review, not a full-blown audit, um, because the controller just really had his act together. All of his schedules were always put together, very well thought out. You had questions as far as why balances changed. And so many times you just get the answer of, well, because sales increased. You know, like that doesn't tell me anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) what caused the sales to increase and he would have an answer and he would have it blocked out. And it was just in hindsight now, it was just too easy. Mm -hmm. Like it was too put together. Mm -hmm. But at the time you're like, wow, maybe I can do this job. (laughs) But at any rate we were doing this review and we were almost done. There was an expense account I needed to have a, an interest expense account that I needed to follow up on because he's one of those really good accountants who there is an interest expense account for each individual loan. So I had one extra expense account that didn't have a loan that went with it. Mm -hmm. So I needed to find out why. Sure. However, I wasn't able to ask him that question because he skied himself into a tree and put himself into a coma.
0: Oh my!
1: <laughs> which is why he gets referred to as comic guy.
0: Right. Um,
1: <laughs> the interesting thing was, I had my expectations set, you know, so I could try to figure out whether whoever was going to tell me had kind of their their liar hat on, I guess, you know, right? So I expected them to say, "Oh yeah, that was just a short term line of credit loan." We took the loan out on this date. We paid it off on this date. This is how much interest we paid. And this was the interest rate that we were being charged. And you do the quick calculation because it is just a review. It's not not going and confirming all of these things like you would in an audit. You would say, oh yeah, that math works out. I mean, I even knew approximately what interest rate I thought they were probably going to come back with. <laughs> <laughs> and the unfortunate person who had to step into the controller's shoes had no idea what I was talking about. And so I just said, well, give me the general ledger detail for this range of accounts and I'll just find the answer myself. Mm-hmm. You know, Because I'd be able to go and see that you know, here was where we borrowed this money, here's when we made this first interest payment and what have you. Sure. So little did this guy know that what he was giving me in this GL detail was a loan account that, Magically appeared on January 1st with an accounts payable posting and magically disappeared on December 31st <laughs> with an accounts payable posting.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: so, yeah, then it became a question of well, so what is this? Well, the owner had loaned the company some money but didn't want to keep it on the books because they were in. Financial straits at the time I was afraid that the bank was going to say, No, you can't keep that as a loan. You need to just put it forth as capital. Right. But those two little entries on the books and off the books at the end of the year resulted in opening a whole can of worms three different sets of accounts receivable listings, and a very elaborate Excel spreadsheet about inventory and trying to calculate. And most of it was all trying to meet these loan covenants. Right. So They can borrow so much on their line of credit based on how many accounts receivable they have and how much inventory they have on hand. Um, And so the level of detail once we got these spreadsheets was amazing. You know, there's like the fudge factor column in there. There's like notes to, well, the auditors are going to expect this number to be somewhere between here and here. So just there was a reason he was able to give very good answers. He had thought about it a lot. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Wow. Like so much work to maintain that. Yeah. And it was really to, so somebody wasn't, he wasn't necessarily stealing from the company, but they were misrepresenting their financials to a bank. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's super fascinating. Well, great catch. An interest expense account that didn't have a corresponding loan. That's a good place to start. <laughs> Goodness. Well, that's awesome. Just yeah. Just one little string and here it comes. Well, super fascinating. Kathy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time and working with us. And um, I, I'd, I'd love if if you're okay with it, if um, our listeners would like to connect with you, would you give them just a couple ways that they might do that?
1: I'm sure you can find me on LinkedIn just under Kathy Inget. You can also catch me at my email. Uh, my Albany email is inget at albany.edu. And those are probably the easiest ways to find me. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Yeah. And we'll make sure um, we'll have it also in the show notes for anyone listening. Once again, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure meeting you over the last few weeks and then having you on the podcast. And hopefully we'll get to meet in person soon and have you play the game. And then I just want to stay posted on how your escape rooms are coming and then also the video game. And anyway, just love it. Thanks so much.
1: Yes. It's been great being on. Not nearly as terrifying as what I was thinking it was going to be. Yeah. It was a lot of fun.
0: Great. Thanks so much. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about any of the topics that we talk about on the podcast, please visit workmanforensics.com. And to register for our Be A Data Sleuth seminars, visit beadatasleuth.com. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com. Thanks for listening.